0: Those of you still in town for the Memorial Day weekend, about two-thirds of our church it feels like, <laughs> but nice to all be here in the same room. I always love, uh, last year, some of you guys know I was on a sabbatical that started this time last year, but last week, so I was gone for the whole single-service summer, which you know, it's nice to have the sabbatical, but I kind of missed the single-service time too. It was kind of an odd feeling uh, in some ways to, uh, to miss it, um, to miss that one-service change, but anyway. Uh, well, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're just joining us for the first time today, welcome to our church uh, we are starting a new series, a new sermon series today for the first time in about uh, five months or so called Big Questions, and uh, it's, a, it's a time where we are answering questions that the church has asked us. So people in our uh, community for the past couple of months now have been feeding us questions over email and just talking to us about these things, uh, things that are on their heart theologically or philosophically about our church, uh, ministry-wise or what, whatever it might be. And uh, we have gotten a ton, so thank you for <laughs> supplying us with a uh, the questions that you have, for those of you that have participated in that. But don't let that stop you. We're actually full, I think, through the summer, uh, I think, uh, roughly around there anyway. But don't let that stop you from supplying us questions if you'd like to give us some. You can email bigquestions at hiawathachurch.com, and that goes to me and Spencer, the two pastors here. Uh, and we would love to at least uh, talk to you about it, or maybe it's, it's going to be a more preachable question than what we have already, so we'll weave it in or extend our series into the fall. Right now it's going to end in Labor Day weekend, but Maybe we'll extend it or at least follow it away for some future sermons. So uh, don't let that stop you from uh, sending us more. But again, thanks to those of you who have uh, given us a ton of really, really great questions. So uh, today, though, we're going to start our first one. Uh, two people asked this question. Uh, the broad question, there, there are a lot of specifics to this that I'll mention some of those here. But the broad question is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And we got this question, like I said, from two people. Uh, but it actually planned to preach this today anyway as sort of an appendix-type sermon to where we've been these past uh, five months, really, since January, mid-January, in our Song of Solomon series. So if you don't know what that book is, the Song of Solomon is essentially a love story, an Old Testament love poem between King Solomon, son of David, lived around 960 B.C. or so, wrote a good chunk of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament between him and his wife, and uh, during which we just presupposed every single week uh, that we preached it that true marriage consisted of a man and a woman, monogamous, married, and faithful for life, but all along understanding that uh, some of you may have wondered about the issue of homosexuality during the series, maybe even asking yourself uh, hypothetically, could the Song of Solomon have been between a man and a man or between a woman and a woman? Did did God essentially flip a coin, you know, and say, all right, it's going to be between these two different parties gender-wise here, but it could have hypothetically been between uh, same-sex couples. It would have just taken way too much time to make that an aside in a sermon, obviously. Uh, we want to save it for its own sermon. So we're going to do this anyway today, but it was great that we had two people ask us this broader question with a lot of specifics underneath it that we won't uh, get to entirely today, uh, but hopefully uh, some of them. A couple of disclaimers here that are really important uh, to let you guys know about. I'm speaking for our, our elders, our pastoral an overseer pastoral leadership team here when I preach this, which means you're going to hear Hiawatha's official perspective on and position on the matter. But that said, aspects of what you're going to hear today, too, are are a bit more open-handed when it comes to what our broader membership believes about these issues, and certainly completely open-handed when it comes to what anyone believes who just walks in our doors and and visits or attends, or maybe even people that call our church home, and on that level, so non-member level, um, completely open-handed, but... Uh, But understand, I'm speaking for, and I I do that every week, I'll say the we a lot from up here, and I I pretty much speak for our overseers, our pastoral leadership team, every week on whatever the issue is, but especially this week, I want you guys to make sure you're hearing that. Secondly, uh, we're not going to answer all your questions. Two of you guys asked this, and I, I think you're here, but if you're not, I guess you'll find this out later on to when you listen to it, but um, there's a lot of great questions that kind of, there's the overarching question, what does the Bible say about this issue, kind of the 30,000 foot view which we'll get today, Uh, but there's sub-questions, there's like follow-up questions, right? Like if this is true, well then what do you do here practically? If this is, the Bible says this over here, well then what does this look like in my life over here? We'll talk about some of those things a little bit today, but, but I can guarantee you you'll leave without some things being answered. So just uh, otherwise you'll have bad expectations and you'll leave just really disappointed. So at least have that good expectation coming in that we're gonna get 30,000 foot view here and not uh, just the ground uh, view on every single detail under the sun as it pertains to uh, this issue. But don't let that stop you from asking us about this. These are really important things to talk about, whether it's personal to you uh, or not. Um, Talk to us about it. These are, these are not things to, uh, to keep quiet on, but to just have open dialogue about in the context of a safe place, like churches should be safe places for this kind of stuff, and Hiawatha is, so please talk to us about it. Uh, third, relatedly, this is going to be a, a life of the church sermon. A life of the church sermon. Uh, what does the Bible say about this sermon? Uh, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to this sermon? Not a political or st- statistical lecture. Just to be clear, or this is a sermon. This is, We're talking from the Bible here, not from the, the argument from statistics or an argument from politics. This is not a lecture on these matters. This is a sermon. We want to hear from God, in other words. We want to talk about what God is saying to us on these matters through his uh, written revealed word to us. So Jesus will be the hero, as he always is, and sexuality more broadly will be addressed as something that all of us wrestle with, whether it's same-sex attraction or not. But have that in, in your minds going on. I hope you guys have this every week. If, if this is not your church home, wherever you guys call a church home, that when you go in, when you hear a sermon, when you read the Bible for yourselves, individually or with your spouse or friends or whatever, have the, the perspective that God wants to say something to me. We can easily have that perspective that God is aloof. He does not want to speak. We're bothering him when we pray. We're bothering him when he asks deep questions that we should just know or something. It's just not true. God loves to speak. He, he, he is a God who calls himself the Word. He's speaking Christ to us. He's speaking salvation, speaking deliverance, speaking clarity uh, into issues that are very murky and this is not an exception here with uh, this issue. He really does have something to say about it. Which is really great. I mean wh- whether you wrestle with this or not on a personal level or not or just have opinions on it, it's awesome that God does care that he speaks into these corners of our existence and our society. And does not leave things untouched. And there's mysteries, no doubt, to the scriptures. And there's mystery, mysterious components, practically, to this issue as well. But there's a lot of revealed divine will uh, in regards to it at, at the same time. So, he's speaking to us as it pertains to sexuality broadly. Not as a killjoy, and, nor as a rote commandment giver, but one who loves us deeply. You know, like if you guys are in a, a loving relationship right now with a spouse or a friend, if you know that someone loves you and you love them, when they speak, you're going to want to listen, right? If you're in a loving relationship with someone and you love them, when they speak, you're going to, your ears will perk up and you'll want to hear what they say. It should be the same for us as the church uh, with God. When he says something, we're going to want to hear it. We're going to want to listen. We're going to want to be maybe corrected a bit or be kind of added to in terms of what um, we are not yet aware of on a particular issue, the blind spots that we may have. So that's the third thing. This will be a sermon, not a lecture. The fourth is that if you do uh, wrestle with same-sex attraction, you're in a safe place. Hiawatha Church is a safe place to talk about these things here. You're not alone. Also understand that. You're not alone. Jesus welcomes you, and so do we. It's not the unforgivable sin, uh, contrary to what you might have heard implied by other Christian teachers or so-called biblicists. So have that in mind, too, as we, uh, as we move forward. <clears throat> All right, so our position, I'll just come right out and tell, tell you what, guys what our position is here from our elder statement of faith. So we have a statement of faith here, a couple of them as a church. One's a member statement of faith, uh, a little bit more simple that all of our members ascribe to you. We, ha- we have a, a tighter document called our pastoral or elder statement of faith that's longer and covers more issues, including this one. And so all of our, uh, like I said before, our pastors, our elders, our, so our lay and vocational pastors and elders here at uh, the church uphold, and and many others, too, who are not on that team, but who call this place home. But this is our official perspective uh, on the matter. So uh, this is from 4.3 in our Statement of Faith. It says, we believe that as the creator of marriage, God defines it, not us, God defines it as a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman, reflecting his love for his people, and more particularly, Jesus' singular love for his church, or as the church is called Elsewhere, his bride. And so by definition and implication, uh, this of course states that homosexual activity, including gay marriage, uh, is sinful and confused and not intended in the beginning by God when he created them male and female. And this is an important phrase too, we'll unpack a little bit later on, but not able to reflect the gospel in the same way as heterosexual marriage. So uh, it, it's we use this phraseology a lot here too at the church about about how there's, There's inner ring, picture like a bullseye, like an archery bullseye. There's inner ring, more major doctrinal issues that the church should care more about than outer ring issues, but both are biblical. This, we would say, is an outer ring issue in that it's not, our perspective on this issue does not necessarily determine automatically if we're a Christian or not. It's not inner ring, like it doesn't directly relate to what Jesus did for us on the cross or the the doctrine of the Trinity or things like this, but it's related to the gospel in that it can or cannot, depending on your perspective, reflect it healthily and properly. So we'll, we'll come back to that uh, in in a little bit here, but with our position, just understand this is where we're starting from, and, and that, that homosexual behavior is a twisted and broken version of the ideal. Uh, one thing to pull from this, though, and this is sort of another disclaimer, but also an extension from our position, is this really important... It's, kind of a qualification I guess in sorts too but it's a further definition of the matter is the difference between temptation and sin. So we want to be clear that there's a stark difference as the Bible teaches between temptation and sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, speaking of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect, and this is the key, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So it's very pot, and this happens in all of our lives every single day. We're tempted, yet we do not follow that temptation unto behavior. You guys see the difference? Jesus was tempted in every single way that you and I were, and yet he didn't sin. He was the perfect man, that the God man, God in flesh. And so we have to biblically separate these things, right? And sometimes they look like they're very close, they, they look like they're maybe you know overlapping orbs, but they're actually very distinct entities. You can be tempted. But not sin in mind and body. So, as it applies, it applies to any type of sin, but as it applies to homosexuality or homosexual behavior, actually, homosexuality broadly, the orientation or the predisposition or the attraction or the temptation towards same sex activity is not inherently sinful. I just want to be clear on that. The the predisposition, the orientation itself, the temptation towards same-sex activity, is not inherently sinful. A product of the fall, we would say, yes, a a, a not ideal predisposition, a not ideal orientation, temptation itself, uh, you could say a product of living in a fallen world, for sure, but not the same thing as sin. Acting out on homosexual desires in mind or body is sinful, however, and is to be condemned in the same way heterosexual sexual sin is. So if this is the case, then to be clear, it's very possible to be a gay but celibate Christian. It's very possible and very, very, maybe more common than a lot of you realize to be a gay but celibate, and celibate just meaning, of course, abstaining from sex and marriage, Christian. Uh, the, the two main sources that I'm citing here today are written by gay, celibate Christian men. Uh, the one is, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, by Sa- Sam Alberry. On uh, the right here and then on the left is uh, Wesley Hill's book, uh, Washed and Waiting. Uh, his book's a little bit more testimonial. Sam Alberg is a little bit more of a systematic uh, biblical approach to this, though both are deeply entrenched in uh, the scriptures. But again, both of these men are self-professed gay but celibate Christians, men who recognize that acting out on their homosexual orientation would be sinful, but who are also not changing to a heterosexual orientation at the same time not because they don't want to necessarily, but because they just can't or haven't been uh, been able to. And I'm not going to, just a sidebar here, not going to comment much more on this today other than just to say here with the whole uh, nature-nurture debate, which some of you are probably well aware of, maybe some of you aren't, but just the debate on where homosexual orientations come from. Is something that we're nurtured into or something that we're born into? Um, all I'm going to say on that, though there's much more to say on this, is that our, our perspective in general here uh, at Hiawatha is that it's both. Right? There's, there's a both and because sin is both, right? Uh, sin is something that can prod us from the outside. We, we can be exposed to things and in certain types of uh, places or, you know, in, in our life, in certain types of parents or whatever or friendships that might be good or bad that can affect us and lead us into sin or not. In different ways in life, right? We probably all had friendships that have been really good, or just really, really bad ones, or whatever. That it created contexts for sin. But, but the Bible clearly says that we're born into sin. At the same time, so homosexual orientations are also by nature, uh, too. And that doesn't mean it's always the same exact thing, for uh, each uh, individual gay person. But, um, but it does mean that if we apply a, a scriptural meta narrative approach to this idea, that the uh, the store, the greater story of where did sin come from. The Bible clearly says about all types of sins, not just this one, that it's, that it's nature and nurture. It's outside of us prodding, poking, affecting, uh, but it's also something wrapped around our DNA that we can't shake unless Jesus himself erases it with his blood. So, that's all I'll say about that. But going back to these guys for a second, uh, they would say then that the goal, just be clear on this, the goal then isn't necessarily for gay men and women to change their orientation, uh, but to run to Jesus and to remain celibate. I just want to be clear on that. The goal isn't necessarily to change a gay person, a Christian's orientation, uh, though that happens for some. It's not necessarily the main goal. The goal is to run to Christ and to remain uh, celibate uh, for life. And we would agree with that perspective. So, um, so these are the two main sources I'm going to use today, and I highly recommend them. If you're looking for an extra source here just to read and you haven't read these yet, there's a lot of good ones out there. Kevin DeYoung's coming out with one kind of right now too, Spence, right? Is it out now? Spence ordered it and it's just been delayed, so it's going to have it here for you as well. But, um, but Spence will eventually have it if you want to just rob his. But uh, anyway, uh, that is also we hear good things about have not read it yet. But these two, uh, uh, Spence and I have both read and would, uh, would highly recommend uh, here for you guys too. All right, so what I want to do now with, with our position, some of these disclaimers said, some clarity on the matter especially that issue of temptation and sin being different and that kind of that third category for many of just wrestling with uh, sexual confusion. We all do, but on a homosexual level. Wrestling there, but being a devout, just a robust believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, those things can and do uh, very much uh, coexist, and that's, and that's great. What I want to do is move on from that and talk about what the Bible says about this issue from two angles, the explicit approach or kind of the what Uh, How does the Bible more clearly approach this matter? How does it teach against homosexual behavior? But then the implicit side, or the why, more the why to the what, I'll explain that later on too, but more the implicit approach. So how does the Bible implicitly teach against uh, homosexual uh, behavior? That'll be second. And I think the stronger argument that you don't hear necessarily as much about when it's just talked about uh, in in the church of the world uh, these days, but... So explicit to begin, and this is aside. there's a lot more to say here, and again, I realize it's one of those places where, again, 30,000 foot view rather than right on the ground view. I just don't have time for all of it. We'd be here till dinner. Uh, but the, the uh, explicit side, and this is aside from the fact that the Bible uh, never once celebrates a gay marriage in the Bible. Uh, you never see it in narrative. You never see it in, um, in, in the letters, uh, in more prepositional teachings in Old or New Testament. You never see it positively explicitly celebrated gay marriage or broadly homosexual behavior. So all arguments to the contrary are arguments from silence. And it's also aside from the fact that God cares about procreation, which, is of course, is not possible with two men or two women. Aside from that, though, I want to mention three verses. The Bible says this, first in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18 God says to Israel, You shall not lie, speaking to the men of the the tribe, so to speak. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Note note again here, too, going back to what I was saying, just a quick aside. Notice that he's saying men who practice homosexuality. So he's not saying those who wrestle with same-sex attraction do not get into the kingdom of God. He's saying those who practice. It's a key word there. So those who wrestle but who are uh, clinging to Christ, it's fine. But those who are behaving out their homosexual orientation, uh, that's what's being specifically uh, condemned here. And then Romans 1, 24 to 27, the one I'll spend a little bit more time on here. It's one of the better passages to go to on the explicit side of the argument. In context, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman church in the New Testament, kind of just reciting the gospel story. And it's a very comprehensive way to go about it. He's, he starts the book by painting a dark background of the story of humanity rejecting God, all of us have, and giving ourselves over to everything under the sun but him. so ultimately ourselves, kind of giving ourselves over to ourselves and all of our desires and so forth. He'll eventually paint the bright foreground of Christ, how that contrasts, how Christ saves us from the state of turning in on ourselves and worshiping ourselves and wanting what we want no matter what. It's kind of the state that sin ultimately is rebellion, not just doing things that God says is wrong, but ultimately saying, God, you're not sufficient. I don't care about you. That's ultimately what sin is, is I need more than you. And so we replace him, right, with our thoughts, our behaviors, or just ourselves. We put ourselves on the throne of our life. And so Romans 1 is really about that. Other things too, but primarily about that. Just three verses here, picking up here in what he says about this darker background of the state of humanity that God comes into to save it from. But this is just true today as well. It says, Therefore God gave them, or all of sinful humanity, all of us, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what he's saying here, uh, in short, is, uh, kind of summarize this before, but that God is giving people over to their desires because they exchanged truth for a lie. So the truth of God, his existence, his goodness, his sufficiency, for the lie that he's not those things. Because they resisted the truth of him with force, they suppressed it, and refused to believe in him, in his ways. One of those desires being homosexuality that acts out. One thing I want you to note here too, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but uh, one common argument that you may have heard before, or you will if you haven't, is that there's a a shortening of the semantic range of the word sexual immorality or homosexuality uh, more specifically. The argument is that the type of homosexuality that was denounced in the first century was not two men or two women committed for a, a lifelong relationship together, consenting as adults and so forth, but it was a specific type of homosexuality that was older men and young boys. So essentially pedophilia, which we, we do know did happen and is, of course, part of what's denounced uh, when the Bible does say sexual immorality. It's wrapped into that, right? So of course that's a part of it, but it's never explicitly spoken as such. And so this position then is refuted then on those two levels. One the Bible never qualifies, ever, in, in any part of the Bible, never qualifies the type of homosexuality that's uh, that's being denounced. So it, it it always just says homosexual behavior or homosexuality. So it's an argument from silence uh, to say otherwise. That's, and I'll come back to that later, actually, too. That's the first thing. But the second thing here with Romans 1 is women are mentioned. So gay women are mentioned here as well, which actually widens the semantic range the scope of what's being talked about when homosexuality is mentioned not just older men to young boys it is it is cross genders here and it's it's the actual act of turning to the the similar gender in on ourselves rather than uh, just that specific um, practice so just a sidebar there in case you're aware of that argument Romans 1 is a clear refuting of that uh, that perspective But going back to this, interesting to note that here, the exchanging of truth for a lie, the exchanging of God, the truth of God for the lie that he's not there or not sufficient or not good or not savior is correlated to the exchanging of natural relations for same-sex relations. See that word exchanging using twice and that latter one kind of being a, a pulling from the former. Homosexual practice then and atheism are connected in Romans 1 or Homosexual practice and false deism or a non-Christian religiosity are connected here. And then, by definition, the inverse is then kind of connected too. The truth of God and the truth of heterosexuality is, uh, is, is connected. So, homosexuality then is not a worse sin. Just to be clear here, it can be easy to derive this from Romans 1. Homosexual behavior is not a worse sin than any other by any stretch it just happens to be a special picture of how all of us have turned away from God and turned in on ourselves. Whatever our sexual orientation, how we all have turned in on ourselves, loved ourselves, rather than the one who is different from us, God. So this is a really important thing to understand. So it's not really highlighting homosexuality. It's saying all of us have done what homosexual behaviorists have done in practice. We have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped ourselves. Like a man turns in on another man, a picture, an image of himself, or a woman turns in on another woman, a picture of themselves, they are are not worshiping the one different from them, but the one like them. So a heterosexual relationship does not have that same type of of similarity between the genders. So what Romans 1 is saying then is, all have done this. You know, we're seeing a, a special picture in homosexual behavior, but it's not to make them sound like they're in a worse spot. It's just we've all done that at least in our hearts spiritually, if not with our, our physical behavior. So in this then, gender is really important. And the differences between gender are God-given. And they help tell a story. I mean, either this can be, like we've, we've been using that phrase a lot in Song of Solomon. So if you've been here for that, you know what I'm saying when I say that. Our relationships tell a story, either a really good one maybe a mediocre one, I guess you could say, but either a really good one or a really bad one. We're telling a story because God's created gender and he's created relationships in marriage uh, to point to him as it pertains to reflecting God's God's greater gospel story. And so I'll move into that now. That was some explicit stuff there, but now I'll move into this implicit section, the implicit biblical teaching against homosexual behavior. And this approach then pulls from that idea of what, what stories we tell uh, with, with our gender, what stories we tell with our marriages and relationships. It answers more of the why, i said this before, but it's more of the why than the what. And this is, this is a big deal in theology, if you guys are studying something else, maybe now you've probably come across this, how there is the what and the why arguments. There's the what does it say, uh, you know, what, the, what does the Bible kind of clearly, explicitly teach on this matter, how, what's the crux, kind of the what of the matter, but then what's behind the what? What, what, what's the backdoor approach to this matter that's a little maybe less obvious, but a lot of times a stronger argument to make uh, with this? So now I'll point to these uh, two sources here I'm using two, because they use this in their books, and we've done it before. talked a lot of you about this matter. We've actually never preached on this in nine years. from up here, it's the first time we've done this. but I talked a lot about it in our, in our intro classes and, and with you, a lot of you in private uh, as, as well. Student so love you've heard this. But it's more of the why. And so the, the, the why comes at it more from the perspective of God did not just flip a coin at the beginning of time, you know, just to kind of like de- determine whether or not heterosexuality would be the way to go. You know, like, okay, I made Adam, now let's, should I do a man or a woman? Okay, Eve, let's, okay, woman, let's go, let's make Eve. It's not how it happened. Uh, nor is he a killjoy, nor is he striving after unfairness in every sense of the word here. To those who in this world have no hope for marriage, if they're uh, gay in orientation, if they, no hope for marriage, no hope for child rearing, he's not striving for that either. Rather, he is telling a story. It's one of the more important phrases of today. Just if That's a new concept, we'll explain that, but I'd like to write things down, write that down. He's telling a story. God is a storyteller. He's moving truthfully in history, but it's a story that we're all a part of, whether we like it or not. But here's the good news. It's a story that benefits us. Whatever our sexual orientation, it benefits us. A story that climaxes in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate goal, the hero of the story, and what he did for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. But it's reflected in healthy, faithful, lifelong, committed, heterosexual marriages in a manner that homosexual relationships cannot reflect. So what's the ultimate story that God is telling in a nutshell? The gospel story is a story of God's love, but a particular kind of love where he, as a self-professed spiritual husband, chases down woos, and ultimately dies for his wife, the church, his bride, in this marrying her to himself. So Jesus dying on a cross, if you weren't aware of this, this is important, Jesus dying on a cross for the church's sins is conveyed in marital language all over the Bible. And not just vaguely so, but as though Christ is the husband and the church is The recipient of that love, we are are the bride. And for the Christian, the true Christian, this is the most important and all-encompassing storyline there is, right? Like, if you're a Christian, there's many ways to word the gospel, but if you're a true Christian, that's the most important thing about you, right? The most important thing about your life is that storyline. In my life, our church's life is that storyline right there. We speak it, we sing it, we remember it in communion, we see it dramatized in baptism, it's the main message we have for non-Christians to hear and adore and themselves be saved. It is the thing that uh, makes us who we are as the church. It is the storyline that we get excited about and point to and, and all that stuff. So for the Christian, it's the most important thing. Wesley Hill, uh, one of the authors I pointed to earlier, he says this about the gospel. The gospel or the good news of Christ's death and resurrection uh, for the early church was a comprehensive scheme or story, they used to structure all dimensions of existence. The gospel is something the church, this is not just the early church, but he's speaking about a specific example about the early church. So the gospel for the early church was this comprehensive story that they used to structure all dimensions of human existence. So, in other words, to get more precise here, the gospel structures all of our existence, including marriage. It's a way for the church, and we do this, of course, all the time, Uh, As as Christians, as we we read the Bible, because Jesus did this, the Bible does this, it claims to look at the world and say, God made everything we see, not randomly, but intentionally for us to see an image of him in it, to be pointed back to him through it. Matter did not coexist with God in the beginning. It wasn't this eternal force that God as spirit was kind of alongside, almost like yin-yang or something. God made everything we see, including you and your bodies and me and this world, everything. And it's an image of his glory. So the, the Christians latched onto this and did, did not just see Christ then as this ultimate image of what God and what he was doing in the world, but they claimed to see everything else as a, a, almost a lowercase s story that helped tell that capital S story. That, that everything is about him. We cannot, there's nothing, I think it was Kuiper who said, there's nothing under the sun or in, or in the cosmos or the universe that God does not look at and say, mine. There's nothing. We can look at it and say, oh, that, that exists apart from him or that somehow coexists within the beginning or he does not have rule over that as the cosmic king, the divine ruler of the universe. And so that, that's the way the church looked and currently does look at everything in life that he is ruler over, uh, over it. The gospel structures and schemes all dimensions of, of existence. And so biblically then we see this as a, it applies to marriage We see this taught when we're called in marriage to image the greater divine storyline in our heterosexual marriages. Husbands being like Christ figures and wives being like church figures. Ephesians 5 gets at this. There are other places too like Colossians 2 or 3. I forget which chapter but hits on this as well. Ephesians 5 says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. This is a profound mystery. Skipping down to the end of the paragraph, he talks more about that. But this is really key. Understand this. This is a mystery how the two go together. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers, points to Christ and the church. And this particular type of marriage, when there's a husband, Loving his wife and a wife reciprocating that love and respecting that love and following that love and all the things it says to do here in Ephesians 5. But when a husband's ultimately dying for his wife, it becomes this picture of, of a divine cosmic romance that, that ties into the center of our spiritualities and that we, that we adore in word, but then we can see it also in deed form uh, play out before us. But this is really important. This is, this is a mystery. I love that it's called a mystery. Because it's hard to really pin that down, right, and get that. But he's saying that when marriage, heterosexual marriages are, are hitting on all cylinders, they are a wonderful picture of God's love, Christ's love for the church when he died for her sins. So then, with this in place, all this that we've started with here in place, the problem then, one of the problems with a homosexual relationship or marriage is that it does not image Christ and the church, but rather consists of two Christ figures or two church figures. Uh, Sam Alberry says in his book, a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church. Instead, only reflecting Christ and Christ or church and church. Ray Ortland says in his book, um, actually one I didn't cite earlier, but a, a different author here, he says, marriage is not just another mutation of human social evolution like democracy. It is a divine creation intended to reveal the ultimate romance guiding all of time and eternity. This is the reason why same sex marriages are wrong. They pervert the mystery of the gospel. In other words, there's not the same difference between a man and a man and a woman and a woman as there is between a man and a woman. When God created gender, He created them similar in a lot of ways, but also very, very different. To image the fact that God is different than his church. In other words, when we, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about God who is a different party, a, a stronger party than us, loving us, right? The church. No one says that God and the church are equal. Like, who says that, right? We don't say we're the same, that we image, uh, we're in his image, but we don't perfectly image him. We, we reflect him, but no one says we're on the same level. The problem with homosexual relationships then is that that's kind of what they say, Either it's a drama of Christ and Christ kind of loving each other or a drama of church and church, depending if it's male or female, loving each other. So when God created gender difference, he had something beautiful in mind that should be really embraced and, and celebrated. It helps tell the story, heterosexual marriage, it helps tell the story of a stronger party leading and loving a less strong party. The Bible talks about this elsewhere in 1 Peter 3 as well how God created men in general. I realize there are exceptions to this. Maybe you're married uh, to, you know, a wife who's a bodybuilder, and that's great. Praise God. But um, in general, husbands will win in arm wrestling, right? It's just, God has created muscle mass in men. That's just different. A higher center of gravity. Usually, they're a little bit taller. Not all the times, I realize. But even if they're not, usually there's, there's a degree of physical strength with men and husbands that surpass their wives. And Again, this helps tell the story, right? The difference. It's the same with God. God's stronger than you and me. Infinitely so, right? But he laid that strength down to become like us, to die for us. That's the drama of the gospel. That you cannot have in a homosexual relationship. You just don't have it, at least to the same degree. You could argue that, well, maybe kind of, in some ways, if one person takes that role, I understand that. But that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that heterosexual, gender-difference marriages and relationships help dramatize that cosmic romance in a way that, um, that a same-sex marriage uh, can cannot. So maybe you are asking that. Just to sidetrack on this for one second, you might be asking, well, I hear that. I understand the difference idea, but can't a homosexual relationship still consist of some kind of sacrificial love and commitments? Uh, aren't there degrees of difference amidst, uh, amongst all of that? And On one level, of course, that's the case, right? I mean, not not all sins on, on this matter are created equal. There are some that harm other people, harm the self and harm other people and maybe society at large a little bit more than others, right? So on one level, of course, that's true to a degree. But just three things in response to that, if that's your question, it's a great question, but three things. One, just because one type of homosexual relationship is less harmful to people or others or society or whatever doesn't make it right. Just because one is less harmful doesn't make it, doesn't make it okay. And second, I said this before, the Bible never qualifies types of homosexual behavior. So you never see in the Bible this type of situation come up and then, you know, Paul or whoever's writing or Jesus even speaking, never see him say, well, here's a second best option for you. Those of you who aren't changing your orientation, here's a second best option is, is a committed, faithful marriage to another of the same sex. As long as you're committed in faith, the Bible never ever even comes close to towing that line. It never gets there. So homosexuality always has has this very wide semantic range to it uh, that covers uh, all kinds. And and third, this is maybe the most important, God is not telling the story of broad, undefined, random love in the world. God's love is very specific. It's very defined. Uh, It's the, it's the, the story of... A love that's very husband-like for a wife-like uh, figure. It's a husband-like sacrificial love specifically for a wife-like entity. That's what you see, Old and New Testament. It's never just God loves broadly. It's always a specific kind of love. So that's a common thing, right? Is maybe you've heard this or even think this today is, well, if it's love, it's got to be okay in God's eyes. And emphatically, the Bible says, absolutely not. Because there are many times of love, many kinds of love, and times that love is misplaced and very selfish. Right? I mean, love can be perverted. We experience this every day. If you try to love someone, it, it, do you have pure motives? Do you have? I mean, all this stuff. God's love is perfect, and there's a specific kind of love that He's intending for the world. It's husband-like for a wife-like entity. Relatedly, understand that God is never called a wife in the Bible. God is never called a wife who then marries. The church, who's who's a bride, nor is the church ever called a husband who marries the husband uh, that that is that is Christ. You, you never see that language used. It's always husband referring to Jesus and wife referring to uh, to his uh, to his people. So, um, so three things there. There are more. There's more to say, but if that was a question you had, it's a great question. But those are three kind of initial responses that I would give. I think the Bible gives on that matter. That's uh, that hopefully help a little bit there. But again, implicit stuff. To wrap this up, this greater gospel story for a Christian matters more than anything, more than ourselves, more than our comfort in life. It structures our whole existence. And so gay Christians then who buy into this story abstain from homosexual behavior due to the contrasting story they would be telling by having a relationship with another of the same sex. Wesley Hill says this, Uh, as, As a gay man, he says, I abstain from homosexual behavior as a gay man because of the power of the scriptural story. Isn't that fascinating? It's wonderful. He's basically saying, in other words, I abstain because I'm captivated by the story of a husband like God loving a wife like church. He's captivated by that story. He believes God defines gender. He believes God defines marriage. He defines the gospel around Uh, marital terms that are heterosexual, and he's not seeking to to change that or tweak. He gladly submits as a gay man to that storyline because he's believed it, right? And he doesn't want to tell a contrasting story that he would tell if he were to engage in homosexual behavior or marry another man. So the power of the gospel story does change lives. It really does. It transforms people, and, and it changes behavior. And you could, you could apply the same thing to heterosexual sin as well. It's not just homosexual sin, it's heterosexual too. We tell the wrong story when a heterosexual husband has an affair, right? He's unfaithful to his wife. Wrong gospel story. God is not like that. He's better. He's more loving. He's more faithful, more committed. He never divorces. So all those things that have come up a lot more in the Song of Solomon, which I won't repeat, here on topic with homosexuality, it's the wrong story to tell. It's not the right uh, divine romance to embody in the world. Gender difference is crucial because God is different from us. All right, so where to go from here? Uh, just a few, a few things. Uh, and man, this could be a whole nother two hours. It won't be, just to be clear, but just saying that. Um, where do we go from here? T- to those of you who are presently wrestling with same-sex attraction, I said before, you're in a safe place. You're not alone. Uh, this is obviously something that you wouldn't share with just anyone, but to whatever degree that you have a, a trusted friend or pastor here in this church, this is your church home or wherever your church home is, uh, the church should be a safe place to share that, to pray that, pray through that, address it, and process it. You are saved by grace. God loves you deeply, not, not by how well you overcome this desire or orientation. You are saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, not by what you do. You're not a lesser Christian, you're not a weirder Christian, you're not a lost cause Christian. Um, And God may help you overcome your desires to become heterosexual, uh, or he may not. This may be a thorn in your side uh, for life. We all have thorns in the side that keep us humble and keep us clinging to Christ. He may not do that and call you to a life then of celibacy. As these two men we've cited today, Sam Alberry and Wesley Hill, a life of celibacy as you cling to him, and find meaning relationally in friendships with God's people. Singleness and celibacy is not a bad thing. Uh, It's not even a second best thing. It's a great option for a lot of people, whatever their sexual orientation. It's not a punishment. Jesus and Paul were single. Actually, uh, Shane Claiborne here says, I think this is great, uh, we can live without sex, but we cannot live without love. And so I think the invitation to you, wherever you are, on that spectrum of wrestling with uh, this issue, this is the reason why we continually preach the need for the church to have deep, sacrificial, committed friendships. Wesley Hill actually wrote a book. Uh, what's it called, Spence? It's friendship or Friendship in Jesus? Or I don't know. I'm just making that up. I don't know why I said that. It probably is. Uh, but for friendship in the church. As a gay Christian, he's saying I'm finding meaning and and that need for love which everyone has. I'm getting that with the church. I will never be married unless, you know, God just magically makes that thing go away in his life. But he's saying I'm I'm getting that need met with Christ and his people. And it's a great book that well, I haven't read the book. I'm just it's good. I am because I know this guy. Actually, actually I actually hadn't mentioned before, but I've I've volunteered with this guy when he was local in Minneapolis. We we served together at the same food shelf here locally in Minneapolis before he moved out east, but a really great guy. And um Anyway, but he wrote a book on that as a gay man because uh, this, this is the whole point. If you're wrestling with this, don't run. That, that's the ultimate thing. Don't run from Christ. I've, I've seen that happen. I, I, I've known people and all uh, gay individuals as in the context of the church in all areas of the spectrum, many who have left Jesus, it's just too big a thing. Uh, and that's the saddest part, of course. Many who have run away from Christ, to never look back. I mentored two guys, uh, at a, a different, none of you guys know these people, different church setting uh, way back uh, who... Um, Confess that, talked about that with me, process that with me, and as I was helping them, they just abandoned Christ and the faith altogether. So that happens. Don't do that. Stay close to Jesus. He, he, he may take that away from you. It may be a thorn, but whatever the case, just stay sexually messy before him. But, but he's calling you to himself primarily uh, not to change. Change, whether physical or spiritual, will happen in the context of the Spirit working on you, but he just wants you rather than any kind of cleaning up that, he would, um, that you may think you have, have had to have done or fake before coming to Christ. So don't run away from him. Stay close to Jesus and to his church. Second here, uh, someone asked this, uh, one of the two that asked about this question, asked about how do we minister to people here who are on the extremely conservative, religious, fundamentalistic side and also the uh, very liberal pro-gay activist side, just for lack of better terms there, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, On the the ends of the spectrum, and this is a great question. (laughs) Just let me have just two minutes on this. It could be another couple hours again, but just a couple minutes. Uh, Remember that uh, when Jesus Jesus ministered in the gospel accounts, he turned away Pharisees, very religious people, very on outward appearances, very, very, very good people, very conservative people, and also very extremely hard-hearted pagans at the same time. You guys know this. If you read the Gospels, you know this, right? He, he was kind of this centrist of sorts that just offended people on both sides. and, he, and he, But he drew people from both camps as well who had those soft hearts and kind of came to him. But, but as we live out the posture of Christ as the church, this will be, it'll be the same for us. He's, all, he's alive in us and we will have this kind of third Gospel way, almost this middle ground third Jesus or Gospel way that's not the extremes, that will, but that will simultaneously offend both sides. So, people ask me, "How do you minister? To, how do you minister here, healthy?" I'm like, "Oh man, good luck. People are just going to hate you no matter what. You know, I mean, both sides, you'll be, you'll be the bad guy. But just like Christ was. Uh, but, but it's not just what you think. It's not just offending the liberal side. You will, as you do what I've been saying here, what we're saying, what, what the Bible's actually saying here about the nature of sin, the nature of the cosmic divine romance story, as you live out that middle, as you love." But also speak truth and exclude where appropriate. Um, it's, it's the conservative side as well. Uh, the, the religious fundamentalists who have no category for separating sin and temptation uh, have no category for including homosexuals in the church. Right? There's just there's hardly a category for them. But and they'll be condescending. They'll think they're they're better. And you know and maybe you have sensed that it, it, whatever you categorize yourself as, you sense that in your heart. And we all have that. That, that proneness, that's a word, uh, to propensity, to uh, condescend and look down. But if that's the case, the gospel hasn't captivated your heart. You think you're better because you don't see your sin as big, heterosexual or homosexual. And so, anyway, getting ahead of myself. Uh, remember that Jesus had this third gospel way, and so that, that's going to happen for us. When we speak the truth that the gospel is a, a comprehensive scheme or story that structures all of our existence... You know, when we say, it's not just about saying, okay, Leviticus 18 says homosexual behavior is an abomination. When we say it's not just that, but it's about this greater, this implicit greater storyline that guides all of history, that homosexual behavior is sin, that it is an abomination, the world will hate you and us for this message, for not joining them in further rebelling against God. But, on the other side, as we the true church include gay people, as, as we love them, as we include broken, sexually confused sinners, wherever they are in that, on that issue, much more than religious uh, fundamentalists would like us to, we'll be hated on that side as well. We will invite them into our homes, our church gatherings, our community groups, we'll listen to them and love them and, and gently start to share God's story with them as well. But again, in that, religious people will hate us for that type of ministry. They're a Pharisees. They, are, uh, they look good on the outside, but inside they have hate and they have condescension. They're the people that were the, the biggest types of enemies of Christ in the Gospels because they had a poor view of sin and, and a poor view of self and a poor view of salvation and their need before God and all of that. So a couple examples there of operating more in that middle in light of all we've said today as we do this. So, so how do we minister to the extremes? We love them, we love the Pharisees, and we love the, um, the pagan, the hard-hearted pagan. We listen to them, we invite them to church, and all along we tell a comprehensive theological story. We live it. One about Christ, the ultimate husband who died for them, his figurative wife, and that when they actually receive that, it eventually quells the angst of the uber pro-gay agenda type but also the angst of the condescending religious right type at the same time it, it, will, it will quell that when they actually people actually are just like Wesley Hill was as a gay man if you're if you're asking the question does this work well i have got one good example for you today yes it does cuz wesley hill said you know what makes me abstain from homosexual behavior it's not just leviticus 18 saying don't do it it's the it's the story it, it's the divine romance got in all of it it's it's christ clearly being a husband and the church clearly being a wife and the fact that my behavior as a gay man cannot dramatize that. That's what's, and I love that story more than myself, more than my orientation, more than my comfort, more than my pleasure. I love that story. And that's what, that's what helps them abstain. So as you speak that story, as we speak it as a church constantly, every single week when we gather here, it's our mantra as we live it out, as your marriage has dramatized this to people on both sides it will eventually quell the angst that you get on the extreme conservative and extreme liberal side and will offer that way. They're probably not even aware of yet that third gospel Jesus way that's very exclusive but very inclusive at the same time. That's paradox, but it's beautiful. Come to the cross messy and understand sin is a big deal as you come to that cross. And uh, that's, the, that's the only answer. There's no other, and not all will accept. Uh, many will reject But that that is the only way to minister there, is is to love, listen, invite, but tell that comprehensive theological story. And um, if it captivates them, if they receive it, let the Spirit do the rest. Third and final, uh, broad statement here. Whatever your sexual perversion, we all have them. Heterosexual or homosexual, Jesus offers cleansing. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6 again, but add a verse that I didn't before. in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My final question to all of you is, as you do some heart searching just right now in the room, do you fit anywhere into that list at all? Anywhere? Do any of those words describe you? If that's the case, then I have really, really good news for you. Uh, The gospel is for you. I don't care where you are. I don't care where you've come from, what you wrestle with. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you because it's these types that Jesus loves and washes and makes holy and sanctifies. So whatever you've brought in the room, lay it at the cross as we respond these final two songs. Don't leave clinging to something that Jesus says, I'll take from you. I'll absorb it. God didn't become a man just for kicks. He became a human being so that he could die as one of us for us. He advocated for us before himself in that regard. He was a high priest that brought us into the presence of God. He was the ultimate sacrifice who shed the ultimate blood that washed the ultimate sins away from the people of God, us. He was all that and more. And so if you are all in this list, terrible news, right? Because you will not get into the kingdom. Hell is our future. But praise be to God, verse 11 exists. But such were some of you. Even though people are still kind of practicing some of these things, we have been pronounced innocent by the blood of Jesus. So Paul can say, you were that. And you're being transformed. You're still kind of practicing those things because you're being, you're still a sinner, but you've been pronounced innocent. You've been washed clean in God's eyes because Jesus has died in your place. It's the penalty has been paid. So if you're in this list, the good news is the gospel is for it's for you, it's for everyone. Whatever your sexual twistedness and and If you have one, like you all do, you're in good company because we all have them, uh, whatever the orientation. And Jesus says, I I am offering you cleansing from that and a model uh, to model marriages after. Uh, He's also offering a new way uh, that in some ways is not new, but in some ways is new. Heterosexual, faithful marriage unto death. And for those of you who are in that camp, you can still tell the wrong story by not having faithful love. Uh, confess that sin, come to the cross, confess it to your spouse, and husbands, die for your wives. And uh, wives, um, respect your husbands and and talk well of them and love them in return. If you guys do that, it it tells a greater story. It tells a story beyond the story you're telling. It really, really does. It's deeply spiritual to do that as Christians and to actually pray about that every day. So I'll close on that. No, let's pray, write the band up here, and we'll respond a couple of songs. God, thank you so much for um, so comprehensively speaking to all corners of human existence, uh, including marriage, including homosexuality, uh, including the whole list of sins really that we talked about there. But thank you also for Hebrews 4 that says that Jesus entered into all of our sin. He entered into all of our temptations and he can empathize with us. In every single way that we've been tempted, he was and yet did not sin. So we have a high priest, a God, who can look at us with these thorns in our sides, these temptations, and he can actually empathize. He can, he's actually been there. Incredible that that's the case. So God, I pray in thanks. I thank you that you, uh, you are with us in our uh, sexual struggles. I uh, thank you that you uh, receive and accept messy people. And uh, God, I pray that wherever we are in, in that area, that we would run to the cross, confess our sin, Look at the bloody man upon the cross among criminals and say, that's the lover of my soul. He loves me. He's spoken peace to me. He's washed me because he's died in my place. He's taken my debt and that we'd rejoice as we leave here and just more free than when we came in. that's, that's my ultimate prayer. Whatever baggage and, and debt and feelings of weightiness we brought in, I pray that at least a little bit it would be lightened. Uh, right now, maybe it already is, but as we close here, Holy Spirit, lighten the load because... Your yoke is easy; it's light. All you require is faith. You've done all the heavy lifting for us. So I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.